You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. The Rewilding Earth Podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia and Catula, the Whedon Foundation, and listeners like you. If you love the work Rewilding is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast while you're there. Vance Russell is the head of biodiversity at Ecosulis, which provides a variety of services including rewilding, wildlands plans, and approaches to landscape scale conservation. Vance was California Director of Programs for the National Forest Foundation, where he managed forestry projects throughout the state. He was also Director of Audubon California's Landowner Stewardship Program, working with farmers and ranchers throughout California. Vance is one of the founding members of the Wild Farm Alliance, which promotes agriculture that helps to protect and restore wild nature, and currently serves on the organization's board of directors. Being in a unique position of working on rewilding projects in the United States and Europe, I asked Vance about the differences and similarities he sees between rewilding efforts. I, guess, I mean, the similarities are, are, well, it was really interesting listening to your and Dave's um, philosophical um, musings about this of what, what, is, what counts as rewilding versus just straight habitat restoration. But the similarities, I think, in general are, are similar in, in that we're trying to do trophic rewilding, reintroducing top predators like wolves, lynx, um, uh, and, all, and also um, species like beaver that, that bring back that, that wildness back into areas that, that, um, that could be degraded or, or even in wilderness areas where, where those species have been extirpated. I think the differences, I, I, there was a really interesting quote that I saw or heard the other day that was really cool. And I can't remember who it was, but it was something like, um, to the effect of in in North America, rewilders, if you can use that term, would say something like, "How would you? How can you do rewilding without thinking about wilderness and paying attention to wilderness?" And in Europe, in the UK, um, they would probably say something to the effect of, "How can you do rewilding without thinking about the cultural history and and the the people that have been here?" And I know that sounds anathema to rewilding, but where in the U.S. you're typically bringing back top carnivores, often in 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 um, areas that where they've been extirpated or gone, and, and those can be wilderness or or other areas. But in Europe, it's species like wolves and bears and lynx that are sometimes coming back to areas they've been gone for centuries, and they can be pretty urban or, or pretty close to urban areas. Actually, you get one of the classic challenges with reintroduction of, you know, the, the, the livestock conflicts. And I think that, that's something that I keep saying that I really want to help solve, but I'm also really kind of tired of it. In some places in Europe, in fact, there, the, the bears have come back or wolves have come back and people thought there were going to be conflicts and there, there've been none. And I think it's partly been because um, there's, there's schemes to repay uh, farmers for, for loss that are, that are losses that are proven to be um, predator um, kills. But um, in some cases, I think the, the tourism 
factor the fact that people are seeing wolves in places like Denmark or the Netherlands. I mean, who, who would ever thought there'd be wolves in the Netherlands? Um, yeah. is, I think that's just sort of over, overweighing the, the negatives. You, you have a perspective on this. You understand that that remuneration for predation stuff only works for a little while. Like ranchers are totally over that in North America. They are done. They don't even care. They're beating wolves to death with shovels. Protected endangered species, you know, they're, they really, really don't care. And so they're on, they're, they're, they've kind of created their own narrative because it's not ever really been true that their backs are completely against a wall now and they're fighting for their very identity. I'm just tired of ranchers using public lands at all, completely. There's some people who say, well, there are people who are both ranchers and good stewards of the land. And I've yet to meet one, but I will be open to that. Yeah. Well, George Monbiot is a perfect example of that. He, he's a wonderful writer and extremely awesome thinker in the rewilding scene here. But to, you know, I've heard multiple times where the, the National Farmers Union here, which is the equivalent of the Farm Bureau over there, where they, and, and farmers, um, that whether they're NFU members or not, say that George is the devil and they, they don't like him. They don't like him as the face of rewilding. But then I was at a conference recently on rewilding and there there was talk there of beaver reintroduction and lynx reintroduction in Scotland and uh, an upland farmer there from the NFU who ranches cheap uh, got up near the end of the conference and I thought, oh, here we go. Mm-hmm. He said that, you know, he, he made the same comment about George. And then, but then he said, you know, everything I've heard here today sounds reasonable. And I was like, holy crap. Wow. <laughs> I never, I didn't think that I would, I, I did, I did not expect to hear those words from him. So I, to me, that, that gives me great optimism that what was said in that conference uh, from reintroduction of eagles to, to lynx, is, if, if you do it in the right way, um, and, and actually pine martin was another species that came up. And those, the groups that were doing it, we, we work with a number of them, um, were, were talking to farmers and sitting down at their tables with them and um, figuring out how to get beyond the conflict. And uh, that's hard work. I, I've done that. When I worked uh-huh. at Audubon, I worked with farmers and ranchers on uh, habitat restoration projects. And to, a bit to contradict your terms, I, I worked with some ranchers who were wonderful land stewards, who were uh, doing the best thing for their land. They were bringing back native perennial grasses and restoring their land and, and looking for ways to improve their businesses. Um, and so I, I think there, I think there, there's something there. And I, I, I think that that's what gives me hope. The other thing I was going to say about this is that I I don't think that there's one, you know, sort of cure-all solution and remuneration has kind of been that thing and it might work for some people and it doesn't for others. And it's a, it's a policy that works in some countries um, and doesn't in others. Like if you look at Scandinavia, 
I think it's worked really well in Sweden, but not very well in Norway, where mm -hmm. I'm, I might have those reversed. But anyway, I, the, the thing that I've been thinking of is, could we have um, traditional and tech and kind of payment methods to address this? And in England, actually with the new environment bill, they're talking about getting rid of uh, subsidies for farmers, which is probably gonna be a good thing. It's gonna be very painful for farmers, but they're talking about replacing that with public payments for public goods, which is essentially paying farmers for ecosystem services. So if that gets done right, which is always a trick in policy, mm -hmm. that could provide a lot of incentives for habitat restoration, rewilding, uh, water uh, replenishment with beavers, things like that. Uh, there's a lot of potential there. The, the, the other thing that I keep thinking of and I keep bringing up here is, and, and it's sort of like, oh, that, that's, the, that's the North American example. Of course, you'd use that as the American. But um, I don't know if you've met Becky Weed um, or heard uh, John talk about her. She um, used to run 13 mile lamb and wool, country, um, lamb and wool uh, company in, outside of Bozeman. And as you, as you know, in Montana, you've got coyotes, you've got wolves, you've got mountain lions, you've got grizzly. And so if you're a rancher there, you're dealing with a lot of predators. Well, Becky, all she did was bring in guard dogs and guard, and guard llamas. They altered the lambing season and they got out on the land <laughs> and it's, and, and they had no predation and they were able to sell those lambs and the wool as predator friendly lamb and wool. It's like, well, and she got a, a, a premium from that. Yeah. So why, why can't more, you know, farms that do well are, have multiple portfolios. I, I grew up in a farming family. My relatives that farmed, they never made it as just farmers. They, they were <laughs> mechanics and teachers and any number of other things during the winter. This is in Illinois. Okay. So you can't farm in the winter there. So anyway, farms that have lots of different revenue streams do really well. Those that don't, don't. I'm optimistic here, and I think that there, there could be pretty interesting solutions. How many farms were, and I'm sure there's far less now, completely sustainable on just their farming alone? Not very many, which is why I'm not a farmer. <laughs> and yeah. so a lot, my, my relatives that did well um, became uh, farmers of vast, pretty, pretty vast areas. And, you know, mechanization helped with that. But um, they were also good farmers, but um, not everybody in my family farms anymore. And on my mom's side, who um, they were mostly dairy farmers in um in Wisconsin, there's very few of them that are still dairy farming. And it's because of the sort of industrialization of agriculture. But if you, if you like have a little history lesson here, my dad, who's pushing 90, um, you know, in the thirties, when he worked on the farm, they, they still had horses and, and oxen driving the, you know, to plow and stuff. And basically in a generation you go, from that to um, tractors and, and, and they, they farm maybe a hundred acres with, you know, the family plus a few farm hands. 
and they had but they had animals and they had um they had cattle and they didn't just grow um bean soybeans and 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 corn which is pretty much what everybody does in the midwest now so you know basically 60 years or 70 years and uh and now the tractors are driving themselves I mean, the yeah, biggest, exactly. the, the most, the yeah. sexiest uh, articles and things that I see now around farming, um, not ranching, but farming, you know, yeah. beans and, and corn and things like that. The biggest problem with farmers is one, understanding the technology and then trying to get out of those service agreements that they get yeah. sworn into because it's a software as a service kind of environment out there. You, yes, you have this big piece of machinery, but you're also locked into a contract that the only person that can work on that machine is a certified, you know, and we all avoid our certified car dealerships like the plague because we know we're going to pay 20 times the price that you could for a good mechanic. And I think they're, and they're hacking and everything. It's just weird to see a farmer with plaid and everything else going out with a, with a laptop computer to work on their tractor and hack into the thing so they can fix it themselves because they used to be able to just fix the carburetor or whatever yeah. <laughs> and yeah. with a yeah. wrench. But, yeah. But that, that begs the question, why can't that tech enter the livestock versus rewilding conflict? Why can't we use drones to warn um, sheep farmers, for instance, that there's a wolf nearby and they need to take action if they know that that wolf has predated lambs, you know, so I don't get why we can't have, why, why we can't have a farmer sitting in Hawaii on his iPhone, you know, dialing up his, his um, irrigation in California, but we can't have drones that are tech that help reduce predation from, from, from uh, predators or, or force those predators to, go back to road ear. There, the, there was really interesting um, uh, point made about lynx that they, you know, they're a forest dependent species. The Eurasian lynx is larger than the North Americans one. And so they, they tend to go after um, larger mammals like um, road ear or kind of mid-sized mammals. And the, the, in parts of Europe where they graze in the forest, they have um, lynx predation problems, but where that doesn't happen, there's no lynx predation problems. So again, it's sort of like, why can't we slightly alter? I, I know there's probably you know a more complex answer to that, but it's still like, well, we should be having forests for forests, not for grazing and pasture for pasture. But if that's a conflict, then why can't we solve it? But if we can figure out how to automate farming, you know, row crop farming. Why can't we use some tech to, to help with, um, with apex predator conflicts? It's Isn't, tell me what you think about this. Isn't there something really glaring in the way? And that is this dying grip on a past that is already gone. something that others would call their culture all these little little tugs on the past that are never coming back. And if, if we're still talking about that, if that's still how some people start the conversation about rewilding and about conservation and things from their side of it to show you that this is where I'm going to be coming from, my granddaddy, this and that. And they don't do it in, a, in just to give context to the now. They do that to say 
in some ways, I want to go back or I want to protect what I think I still have of that. If that's the yeah, big they, question yeah. in the room, how can we get yeah. to the point where we're going to put, let's say, wolf collar signals on the airwaves? Because the biggest danger of that is now I've got this drone. I know how to tap into my com- my computer on my tractor and hack that. I can hack this yeah. drone, find out where the wolves are, and go shoot them. That, that could be a, a, a perverse um, incentive to, for conservation. I guess what, you know, the the sort of, cultural thing is nice except when you cherry pick the certain things i mean we're not, yeah <laughs> we're, we're not going back to the 18th century and and being wistful about diseases that killed hundreds of millions of humans and, <laughs> and not having you know um immunization although i guess there's people pushing that but you know farmers adapt that's what they that's what they do well i mean that you know, the, no farmers using seeds from the, the the 18th or 19th century or planting that way. They're not going out except for Mennonites and Amish and planting by hand. So, But that conversation uh, still keeps, I mean, in, in here, in the West, it keeps coming up and it, it kind yeah. of puts a little bit of a damper. I figured out over the years that it was a way to put a wet blanket on what they felt like the conversation would start out at. It, yeah. And the point at which That's we true. wanted to start the conversation got completely tamped down by these. Let me That's tell you about the way things were. Oh, sure, yeah, that that'll come up. But uh, you know, there there's a lot of different ways to look at that. I was just looking at something that showed that one of the reasons why wolves weren't um, persecuted so much in Eastern Europe is that those uh, um, sheep herders generally and livestock uh, managers had guard dogs a lot more than in, in Western Europe. Um, so, you know, the, it's, the, that's a difference in culture between Eastern and Western Europe. It could also just be because Western Europe had a lot more intensive use of land than Eastern Europe, which has a lot more extensive agriculture. So there, those conflicts didn't happen as frequently as, as populations rose. Maybe things are better in the aggregate and they're going to get better and that we won't have to have all these same arguments over and over. Is it dying out at all in, in your experience? Sometimes I think that and sometimes I don't. It depends on which day you ask me. But <laughs> I, I, I kind of, the, the, your comment reminded me of a conversation I had with John Davis uh, when I was at the National Forest Foundation. This is about uh, 10 years ago now when I was just starting there and John was, I was just starting there. I'd, I'd been working with farmers and ranchers and I was shifting more over towards uh, forest conservation and, and, and conservation of really, really big landscapes uh, and kind of going from the central Valley up into the Sierra and, and, and down into the um, Southern uh, mountains as well in California. And John said something like, we, we got to think bigger, with rewilding, let's 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 reintroduce grizzly and, and wolves, and I was like, I, I kind of th- I was like, no no way, John, like grizzly <laughs> seriously. And I was like, that's cool, and you know, literally about uh, four years ago, when I when I was just about to leave there, you know, there, that wolverine was sighted. Um, it was in a in a place where we were doing a lot of work. It, it wasn't thanks to us. It was just kind of pure luck, but 
that forest is is really intact. It's really rich, and there's a corridor that 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 individual came from uh, Idaho, so it traveled 400 miles, mostly over wilderness lands, and um, to get there. And then that wolf pack uh, crossed over the border from Oregon into Northern California. And to me, the, the you know two species that have been extirpated from California coming back during that time. And I actually started hearing people talking about reintroduction of grizzly. And okay, you know it's it's the the California um, subspecies is gone, but um, that people were starting to talk about that. I was like, holy cow, this is. You know that that happened in the course of, you know, five six years. Where, uh, when I started at that job, people would have people would have shouted you out of a room if you had, had talked about that. But then the conversations were starting. So, I think things like that were are, are again make me really optimistic in in a in a world with climate change where it can be hard to do so. But I think rewilding has changed the conversation a bit and it's it may have woken up some of the more traditional conservationists to think bigger and and to, to that these that you know the, these species reintroductions or the fact that species can come back and make a huge difference in ecosystems is possible well in the, terms of waking waking things up it's also going to uh wake up the opposition if if yeah if we were, hey, we're still talking about wolves over here, and we're still going to, you know, do everything in our power to stop that. And you guys are now already talking about grizzlies. They might be feeling like it's getting out of hand, and their voice might seem bigger. That's true. Than it really truly is. It's not in terms of sheer numbers. They're just a lot louder because I yeah. feel like they feel like that maybe they, based on what you said, they, that could be very scary for them. They could be just raising their voices even more and doing borderline or completely illegal stuff toward endangered species in some cases because they're just that frantic and to me that's good news i mean if they're they had an easy way to do it we had a really good plan but if they didn't want to do it the easy way and this is just a sign of them a last gasp um it's a fantasy but man what you just said makes me think what would that sound like to the ears of someone who's still scared to death wolves are going to come back into their area yeah, I mean that 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 gets nicely into the psychology of farming. And one thing that, if you if you can call it that, it sounds silly to say, but when I was at Audubon, we did restoration on farms and ranches. It was sometimes a, a highly highly modified landscape. So this is in the Central Valley, in the Imperial Valley, which is even more so. Although there's a lot of wilderness around there, our credo in that work was we did restoration in, in a way that was compatible with the agricultural operations and um, you know sometimes that all that meant was was uh, planting a hedgerow along a farm border but in some cases it was we, we were restoring hundreds of acres of perennial grassland and oak woodlands and one of the species that we um, saw coming back in a lot of ranches and farms was valley elderberry longhorn beetle which is a listed species it's a it's a a beetle that's been um, threatened by loss of riparian habitat 
so there there are farmers that be like, oh, I've got VELB on my farm. I'm proud of that. That's cool. It it doesn't impact their operations. It, they they knew that fish and wildlife weren't going to show up at their door and, and take them away. But there were other farmers that were pretty worried about that, that that could, you know, cause loss of um, an area to, to farm. And we, we actually set up a safe harbor agreement in, in Yolo County where we did a lot of this work, which is um, the county uh, just adjacent to Sacramento, kind of in the north central part of the state, very agricultural county. It's the highest um, direct sale uh, farming county in the country, and that's mostly organic CSAs, community-supported agriculture, and farmers that sell um, tomatoes and, and other fruit and veg directly to um, uh, restaurants in San Francisco. Like Alice Waters bought her 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 fruit and veg sometimes um, from Yellow County, so that was the county that supplied a lot of the organic and and kind of back to the you know local farmer kind of movement um, restaurants in, in the Bay Area. Anyway, so we we set up the safe harbor agreement for the county kind of as an insurance policy for those farmers that were worried about listed species. Nobody signed up for it, and then I talked to a, a fish and wildlife agent who said that uh, in the history of this grant program that had done restoration in the entire state of California that had given out millions and millions of dollars for restoration, brought back all these listed species or, or helped protect a lot of them, nobody had ever been sued or gone after because they had a listed species on their farm or ranch. And I'm like, okay, so what's, what's the paranoia here? Why is there fear-mongering. And it, I think it kind of goes back to that. But w in reality, if enough of that happens, it's kind of like if you have more bicyclists in New York, it becomes safer to bike. Mm -hmm. um, there's there's less car bike accidents when in any urban area where where you have more bikes. So if you have more species and more of these species coming back, I think there's less and less people having that issue. It, it, it's like what's happening in Europe with there's more bears now in, in Europe than I think in North America. And a lot of that's just been because of reintroduction, mostly from Eastern Europe into, into Western Europe. Or wolves, for instance, roaming wildly and, and repopulating um, places like Denmark and Germany and, and uh, France. I think we have to pay attention to, you know, when they say follow the money, I think in this case, you have to follow the source of information slash propaganda, where the people who are scared of things that aren't even going to happen, that they're not in danger of in remotely even happening to their land, their farm, their way of life. Uh, a lot of the ideas that they get seem to be from places that profit from them being scared or putting those ideas in people's heads for some other reason, for their own ends, but they pretend like they're your friend. So like radio and, and, and so this has been going on since long before the internet. We've seen the internet version of this. We're in the midst of that right now where people get into these bubbles and, and then they show some, one of these people that comes from one of these radical bubbles, it comes to a hearing or something and they sound like really crazy people like 
who this guy needs help like <laughs> you know and where are you getting all your information and it must be that part of our job uh, or someone's job within all of this rewilding when it comes to relation public relations and things like that is to kind of track down and and figure out where people are getting their information because here in the 90s uh, way before the internet really took off and that wasn't where they were getting their information. There, it was a lot of black helicopters. The, inf- the, 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 the issues were simpler and bigger and, um, you know, uh, they had to be sound bites. They couldn't get into much detail. So it was black helicopters, UN, New World Order, and that's what everybody was afraid of. And then we tracked down where they were even getting this stuff. What's this black helicopter thing? And we found that it was a really hot topic with a lot of right-wing radio show hosts and the, and and that, that was the beginning i didn't know it at the time of how people were starting to figure out how you could affect mass consciousness around an issue uh, to the extent that you could get a whole army of people together holding flags up saying ridiculous things on their signs and protests that aren't even remotely close to true um it should have been uh, foretelling of what was going to happen when the internet really took off because, of course, that's happening now on, on the grandest scale humanity has ever managed to achieve. But do you guys yeah. have to do a lot of that? I mean, it sounds like you run into oh, yeah. that just as much now as, as, as ever. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, there, there's starting to be issues around Beaver here. They're, they're kind of recolonizing many places. There's a lot. There's, um, there was a really interesting map that came out. I, I can send it to you if I find it. But it showed that most of the beaver rewilding that's happened in the UK has been either illegal releases or unlicensed releases. There's been a few um, licensed and legal releases, but most of them were not. And they're, and they're spreading and they're, they're, they're rewilding in the way that, that beavers do, especially in Scotland and Wales. But to, to get back to your point, which is a really great one, I, I think, you know, it's, there's that classic comment about how conservation is sort of 80% psychology and 20% doing conservation, conservation mm. biology. And I think that that's, as practitioners, that's a lot of, of what we do is working with people and, and to, to figure out these problems and, and, and solve them. I mean, one of the things that I did in graduate school was learn about how to do alternative dispute resolution. Well, 20 years ago when I was studying biology, I would have said, you're crazy to, that if, if I would have known that I was doing that, uh, you know, a, a few years later. So, but that's, that's a lot of what we do. Actually doing real measurement of what's going on here. And this is one thing that EcoSoulis is trying to do um, in, in Europe uh, and, and the UK is look at how is how are we measuring the success of of rewilding what what is that success and how does it look and how are we doing that we've got a number of tools that we're using to do that we're going out in the field we're we're trying to use tech drones um, lidar other things like that and and the, there's also simple things that people are doing more and more you know taking photos before and after it's people uh, especially with restoration don't always get that, you know, you, you have to sometimes um, do a little bit of earth moving in a stream, for mm-hmm. instance, to get that stream back to um, uh, moving on its own course and, and doing what it, what it wants when it's been 
you know, dammed or diked or it's funny. People don't necessarily look at that um, kind of sometimes bare earth and, and, and realize, oh, this is going to become a, a meadow and a, a, a properly meandering stream and the hydrograph's going to come back. Okay. But if people go to an urban area and see a building going up, it doesn't take any stretch of the imagination to know that, it, you know, that ugly hole in the ground or that scaffolding is beca- is going to become a building. So we as rewilders and, and conservationists need to do a lot better job of explaining to people and describing what we do and how we're going to get there and, and, and what it's going to look like on the way. So that that's one thing that we were really passionate about and really interested in is how do you measure that? How do you show um, what success looks like with, with rewilding? It, it's, not, it, it's not just the number of species that come back or it's not just the, 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 the diversity. It could, it could be biomass or it could be uh, increase in number of bryophytes. Um, we're, we're finding that in some places where beaver come back, you, you get an explosion of bryophyte diversity. And that bryophyte diversity is a really nice proxy indicator for for showing uh, diversity of other species and showing success of the site as well. A lot of the things that you do uh, could be seen as bordering on the geeky, the sciencey, the and for a lot of people, <laughs> after the, what I just said, <laughs> no, no, I'm just looking at your site and I'm and I'm thinking about the like. Well, last week we talked um, about old growth and we talked about yeah. tree planting, and it's always the soundbite mm-hmm. stuff, and it's always the guys that are on the front lines of the political debate who who kind of control the marketing and the message and everything that we go out with we're always looking for ways to simplify things so we talk we go, we're like what what are people going to be able to wrap their heads around well tree planting mass tree planting and that's not rewilding it's one one part and in some places it's like a very crucial core component but just a component of real true rewilding and I think that some people listening who are younger, who are trying to maybe figure out uh, either what they want to start their first career in or switch careers to, um, I like the idea of planting trees. I like getting my hands dirty. I, I want to rewild. I don't want to just support groups who do things. I want to be involved and I want to do it maybe professionally. And we always try to round out our uh, discussions with what our guests would say. What are some of the things that people could go into if they want to really truly get their hands dirty beyond tree planting, beyond the soundbite type stuff? But it sounds like you've got a really good holistic view of a total what a total rewilding or restoration project should look like. And, and that probably means that people have to have some very specific skills if they're interested in the kind of stuff that you do, what should they be looking to do? What should they be looking to study? What sort of specialties would you like to see people taking more interest in to do the kind of work that you do? Well, you're right about tree planting. It's it's sort of the charismatic megafauna of the mm-hmm. restoration world. <laughs> and it, you know, it's it, tree planting is great. It's fun. It's uh, it's something that's measurable. It, after a, a day of planting, you can see all the trees you plant but the where where the success comes um is the boring part of maintenance and weeding and and 
and, and watering those trees. That's, that's the hard work. Well, now don't play into it. It's not the boring part for you though. <laughs> I mean, there's people like no, you who find that but, to be truly exciting, right? Oh yeah. And I mean, that, that's, but that's what's, that's the exciting part is, is making sure that that tree planting, which is an awesome tool as well to, for public engagement and getting people engaged and getting outdoors. There's a lot of different ways to go about this. You could be, you could become a, a mammal biologist. You could become a carnivore expert. I mean, wh- how much more fun can you get than going out and, and darting carnivores and, and measuring, them, measuring them and looking at their teeth out in the field? That's, that's pretty cool. Or, you know, studying ornithology um, and, and counting birds and, and listening to, to bird calls. I, there, did you see that article in the, the New York Times about the insect apocalypse? Yes. I, I think, you know, becoming an entomologist is 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 a is a really important thing. There's millions of bugs out there that um have haven't even been named. You could have a species named after you, but the people that notice the changes in those bugs and species, they were amateurs. Um and they, but they were highly um skilled amateurs. What's the breakdown of somebody with a formal higher level degree uh, and the people, everybody else who's involved in a project on average? It depends. I, you know, there's some very technical people that I've worked with and then some people with liberal arts backgrounds that, that, have, that are working in restoration, conservation. And sometimes it comes down to um, how good of a writer you are and how, how well you speak about what you do and how much you pick up the, the biology. On the other hand, if if you're a, a a total biologist, then you should also be paying attention to being a better writer, and as you said, getting out there in front of people. Maybe even being more of an activist as well, because if you're not, then what you're studying that that springtail might might disappear, and you can't study it anymore. It depends. I I I agree that it's probably a lot easier to get out there um, given the technology, but you know you look at people like Beatrix Potter. She was an amateur, you know. She she did really incredible drawings of, of of bugs and leaves and trees and things like that, and ended up being a a pretty amazing naturalist. And also, but you know, she she of course had the Beatrix Potter stories where she made uh, a lot of money. She was she was um, she was from a wealthy family anyway. But then she she from her wealth that she earned from uh selling her books she she bought land in the lake district and and protected that forever so that's to me that's a perfect example of somebody who was a so-called amateur and a woman at, at that period that just went went and did what she wanted and i think that's that that to me is the other um story here if you're passionate about something do it because you, you you'll be able to do it and um don't let anybody ever tell you that you can't. I mean, that, that's, that to me, that's always the biggest thing is it's, it sounds corny, but um, if you, if you want to be a, a population ecologist that, that models complex um, food webs, but you're terrible at math, you, you can still do it. You just need to work harder on your math. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we have a very, very big job ahead of us. Uh, probably the biggest that humanity's really ever faced. And if half earth is going to gain traction, uh, rewilding is going to continue to gain traction. 
Yeah. And it all coincides with this, this awakening moment that humanity is having. It's not, we're talking about problems that are here right now. And, we, and in my early years at Greenpeace, I read a book about global warming, one of the first ones ever. And I was like, this is crazy. I don't know how I can care about something <laughs> that's so far off in the future. Uh, I had set upon a path that would lead me to being extremely surprised in the recent years that I'm living a lot of the stuff that that book said wasn't going to even be here until after I was dead. And yeah. yeah, and so like we're really, people are really waking up to that fact. And they're, if we're going to do half Earth or 30% Earth uh, by 2030, like the Weiss Foundation wants to do, and 50% and protected areas by 2050, all very, very big goals and a lot of money pouring into those goals. Now, I think uh, people are going to follow suit from that billion dollar donation that he's made to other billionaires, hopefully stepping up and putting those resources. You know, it's, it's not a bad thing for people to be thinking about, especially people who are maybe a little bit unhappy with what they're doing professionally now, because <laughs> it seems like an awful lot of work is ahead. I mean, you guys do an awful lot of work in the field. It takes a lot of manpower, uh, people power to do what you do in certain instances in a restoration situation and all of this rewilding. There's going to be a lot of need for a wide range of professions and people and backgrounds and interests. So, Oh yeah, that's very true. Well, the, and, and saying that too, there are certain things that we're hoping to automate a little bit more. I mean, we don't want to have robots replace people that are out listening to bird songs but the if you can go to a pond for instance and sample do a couple of water samples or if you can go to a in the field and 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 take a few bagfuls of bryophytes and send it off to a lab and get um a, you know dna barcode sampling and that reduces the time um it, it takes to to id those species and that that time can be better spent on better managing that area where they come from, then that's, that's cool. And I think, like you said, too, to do these really big projects, or if we're going to do half birth, or um, rewilding a lot of new areas, that's going to take a lot of people with a lot of different skill sets, from leadership to development, to biology, to um, logistics, to, you know, you name it. So there's a, there's a lot of um, exciting things there. I, you know, there, there was something one of those funny kind of clickbait type ads popped up the other day that said something like five new jobs that you've never heard of that are going to be in the future. And I just, I clicked on it just to look and it <laughs> that, the really annoying thing where you go through the, the, the arrows and a ton of ads come up And the third or fourth one was, was something like a rewilding expert. And I was like, Oh my God, I, I, I could, I could not believe it. I, I just, it, you know, it was, it was there with, these other, uh, you know, completely unrelated non-conservation type jobs, but that was in there. I was like, wow, how did this, how did that come up? And I, I should have kind of pursued it, but um, so, you know, that, 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 that's a, that's a potential occupation that didn't exist when, when we were in university a few years ago. Oh man. Yeah. It's crazy. To find things where you you totally think you're going to just see one of those clickbait articles or whatever, and there's a little bit of serious in there. There's a little bit of like, hey, that's you know that's pretty hip in our world <laughs> to be yeah. to be talking about rewilding. And I just love how, and I love more than anything how it affects Dave 
Foreman uh-huh. because he's this is his baby. He never had an actual yeah. baby, and I'd say that the replacement <laughs> for that is either his cats. He would say it was his cats, but I'd also say it's the word rewilding, like just the concept. And for he really does get a sparkle in his eye when he talks about how it's gone out there, especially mm-hmm. being the word nerd that he is, that it's in the Oxford Dictionary now. So that's that a very, was really cool when he was talking. <laughs> he's very proud of that, but he yeah. should be. And it is interesting yeah. to watch how this is all branching out there and to meet people like you. And so many others who are doing the work are out there doing this stuff. And I think that's probably one of the best things about this podcast is to, we really want to go out and meet tons more of you to paint that picture of what it's like. You know, it, it is not just the thing that you do on Saturday and Sunday. It's your thing. It's what you do. And there are many, many people like you to, to find out, you know, maybe where somebody fits in all of this, where maybe I would like to go with this. So Vance, thank you so much for being on Rewilding Earth. I have a feeling we're going to have to have you back because we didn't get nearly (laughs) geeky enough, not nearly geeky (laughs) enough about some of the restoration work and things that you guys do at EcoSulis. So we're going to have to continue this conversation, at least for that reason alone. Well, that sounds great, Jack. I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and appreciate the great work that you're doing on the podcast. And and as I mentioned, the previous editions have been really fantastic, really excellent, really interesting. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Be sure to visit rewilding.org to subscribe so you don't miss past and future episodes. And while you're there, please consider supporting Rewilding by making a donation or subscribing to the Rewilding Earth newsletter.